Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 65. We're getting up there. I think this is like, isn't 65 like an age? Yeah, I think so. I think we should become, we're officially senior citizens, right? I love it. We yeah, should get those discount cards. Discounts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just waiting to start getting those like soft surroundings catalogs, you know, <laughs> Coldwater Creek. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, I had a thing in my throat. Soft surroundings is like... My mother-in-law likes it. It's like it's every all the clothing is like super soft. Now this might not even exist anymore. This it's been a few years, but it, and but everything was like a number one, two, or three depending on like the level of softness. Oh my god, this sounds like my dream. Yeah, I know. I gotta look into this. But I'm like, are they all the same? Size, but then different <laughs> softness, soft surroundings. So just a one size. I'm pulling it up right now. I bet they're killing it during the quarantine. Oh, yeah. This is their time. Okay. No, it looks like you can buy a – let's look up some loungewear. (laughs) 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 And oh, my gosh. Okay, so it's usually women of a certain age that wear this clothing. But on the website, it is like young, hot models. Everybody – of course, this model is going to look amazing in every billowy – Right shirt she's wearing. <laughs> oh my god! Can you imagine being like a hot twenty-seven-year-old model, and then they're like, "I think you've aged out, and we're gonna need you to come on over to Soft Surroundings and we're gonna you're, Chico's you're Chico, Chico's age now." <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Your Coldwater Creek material. You can okay. I'm, I must have been totally wrong about this whole um, everything's a level one, two, or three in softness. Maybe that was an old thing. But now you can buy stuff. This is just a soft surroundings commercial. <laughs> uh, you can buy everything <laughs> in regular sizes. And, like, if you talk in like really soft voice, then this soft, could be like an ASMR. Yeah. Like, soft soft surroundings. surroundings. I'm looking at some super tech pocket leggings um, for $79.95 a month. You can order in Mrs. <laughs> Petites, women, and plus size. Fabric and care machine wash cold. <laughs> Separately, inside out, on the gentle cycle. Um, I'm totally going to order something as soon as this podcast is over because this shit looks comfortable. Okay. Dude, well, now that I've wasted enough time uh, on soft surroundings... Uh, you got anything you want to talk about up top? I don't. Okay, then let's just get into some quickies. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, you're first, dude. Okay, so my quickie this week is a write-in request. Um, Amy Sharnock requested, she wanted to know, what is the real story behind the song Frankie and Johnny? And I was like, you know what? This is great. I'm always looking for a love story. I need to look because I was thinking Frankie and Johnny was a love story because of the Michelle Pfeiffer Al Pacino movie. 
don't know any of these things. And then I was like, oh, no, no, this is not a love story. And so I was going to do it as a crazy story, but it wasn't quite long enough. So I'm going to do it as a quickie. But thank you. Amy Sharnock for the challenge because this is a great, yeah. great story. Um, Amy and I were in a baby playgroup together. Oh, you first, were? Our first babies. She oh. has, I think, three kids. God bless. <laughs> I know. Good luck in New York City. And now I'm ready to hear this horrible story that she suggested. Yeah. I hope this answers your question, Amy. Um, I found a really great article on mentalfloss.com written by this person's name is Miss M-I-S-S and then last name Selania. Miss Selania. Love oh. it. <laughs> I'm jealous. Um, so, okay. Frankie Baker lived in a rooming house on Targy Street in St. Louis. And this was back in 1899. She was 22 or 23 years old. And she had a seven, a younger boyfriend, a 17-year-old boyfriend named Alan Britt. Sometimes people call them Albert Britt and, um, or Al Britt. So I'll, we'll call him Al. Uh, let's call, let's call him Al. <laughs> you call me Betty. I will call him Al. So several sources say that Frankie was actually a prostitute and that um, 17-year-old Al, Al was actually her pimp. So it's, there's some, like, discrepancies in stories, but this is just what some people are saying. So okay. Al was a ragtime piano player, and he was a really good-looking guy. Apparently, him and Frankie had been together for uh, quite a while, but he was seen canoodling with another prostitute named Alice Pryor. And on October 14th, Frankie caught them together at a club where Alan was playing piano. And um, Frankie confronted him. Apparently there was an argument. And then Frankie went back home alone, angry. And then the next morning, Al went up to her room. And that's when Frankie shot Al with a 38 wounding him in the abdomen. So he was taken to the hospital and he died four days later. And of course, because he was alive for four days, he told them that Frankie was the one that shot him. So she right. was promptly arrested. At Frankie's trial in November of 1899, she testified that Al had beaten her before and that he had pulled a knife on her. And that's why she shot him. Judge Willis Henry Clark, he ruled that she shot Al in self-defense and declared her not guilty of murder, which I'm really surprised by back in those days, you know? Yeah. Yeah. A woman saying that it was self-defense and they were like, okay. You know, right. usually it's like burn the witch. The, because of this whole story, it gained a lot of notoriety. Um, someone had written a song. His name is uh, Bill Dooley. He wrote an original song about the murder, and he called it Frankie and Alan. And then apparently yeah, like, that's not his – well, his family got upset by that and fought him oh. and, um, and asked them to change it. So he ch changed the name to Frankie and Johnny. It first appeared in sheet music in 1904. Four. It was written, rewritten a million times, a million times. So in sheet music, it was written in 1904 under the name He Done Me Wrong. Then um, Bert Layden published the same song and named it Frankie and Johnny in 1912. And then it says that there were 250 versions of Frankie and Johnny have been recorded since with varying lyrics. Sometimes Frankie ends up being executed in the end for the crime. 
And 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 a few of the songs, like Al survives the shooting, so every song has been different since. There's been movies about it. There's an Elvis movie about it. And Ooh. there's um, the movie with Michelle Pfeiffer and Al Pacino called Frankie and Johnny. The story's been huge ever since, but it always varies. But Frankie in 1901, because of the notoriety of the murder and also all of the songs and stuff, she wanted, she moved away from St. Louis and she went to Omaha, then Portland. But the song just kept getting remade into different things. Like, so there was plays, movies, and actually a ballet written about the murder. <laughs> And so many different (laughs) songs. So she was forever branded the woman that shot Johnny. And some people hated her for it. And then some people thought she was badass and like wanted her autograph, you know? And then she's like, it's not Johnny, it's Al. I know, I shot (laughs) Al. And so, um, and then some people thought she was crazy for even thinking that the song was about her. But (laughs) either way, she never profited or made any money from the songs or the movies or the ballet or any of that stuff. She tried suing film companies, including one lawsuit over the 1933 May West film called She Done Him Wrong. And in the 1936 movie, Frankie and Johnny. Then when she sued them, they apparently a music historian named Sigmund Spaeth came in and testified that he had previously written that song, Frankie and Johnny, and that he said that it wasn't about her shooting, the shooting. It was written about the Civil War. And he was paid $2,000 for his testimony. Uh-huh. So they got him to come and be like, no, that's not about you. It's about um Civil War. <laughs> and so so the juries they weren't convinced that the song or the movies were about her and she lost all of the lawsuits and she went back home to Portland and she ended up dying in a mental institution in 1952 poor Frankie Dang. I know she was probably just like gaslighted up and down for fucking 50 years people telling her she was crazy that she didn't do calling her a murderer but then also saying that it's not about you and then people singing a song about you killing someone and being like this isn't about you frankie it's <laughs> not about you you're so vain yeah <laughs> about her. totally damn it <laughs> i feel really bad for her so that is damn she killed a person but he probably if he was her pimp he probably was trying to hit her or killer. You know? You're probably right. I'm probably. Back yeah. on Frankie. Back on Frankie. So <laughs> that is the quickie story of Frankie and Johnny. That's a good one. Now I got to look up the song because I don't know it. Well, there's a Even million though. of them. You choose. I'm going to look up the most famous one. I'm going to look. I'm okay. going to listen to all of them. Okay. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do the rest of my day. Um, well, you know what, Jen? What, Sally? My quickie is also a write-in <gasps> You guys, we not, love when you write in. We love it. We love. And not only is it a write-in quickie, but it is a quickie from Ben's awesome cousin, Karen. Oh. And I was so happy to hear from her. I didn't I didn't even know she listened, but I'm just – it's so great. I So I'm going to tell you – I'm going to read the story as she wrote it. And she's actually an amazing writer, so this story is awesome. Okay. She says, I was pretty sure I was going to marry Dan after he spoke five words to me. I'll tell you those words soon, but first, the backstory. Aww. I met Dan online in the fall of 1999. Back then, online dating was really, really new, and so were online ads. 
I was checking my email one day and this weird box thingy popped up and said something along the lines of, take this fun quiz and find your next great date. Hey, I like fun quizzes and great dates. I clicked the box and I enjoyed taking the quiz and building my profile. Over the next few weeks, I started to get emails on the website from different guys in my area and I enjoyed emailing back and forth with them. One of those guys was Dan. Somehow, after the first few introductory emails, Dan and I had fallen into a pattern of asking a get-to-know-you-better question. The second person answered the question and asked a different question back. There were questions like, what was your favorite childhood memory? Or if your house was burning down, what three possessions would you save? My roommates and I had fun coming up with the next question I would ask, and we looked forward to his responses because his answers were always so perfect for me. One day I dared to ask him what his favorite college basketball team was, and this guy who grew up in a tiny town in North Arizona actually picked the best team, the University of North Carolina Tar Heels. Dude, I grew sorry. Huh? Didn't oh. mean to go, that's like my husband's whole family's like they live and breathe the Tar Heels. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's where I mean she grew up there and actually her her dad was a professor oh. at the University of North Carolina. Oh, cool. Um so she says, I love, love, love to root for the Tar Heels. She said, my cynical roommates and I now decided that this guy, though perfect on paper, just may not be attractive to me. So I took the plunge and suggested we exchange pictures. When I received his picture, I was looking at a tall, dark, and handsome guy, my favorite type. We finally had our first date in January tw- 2000. We met at a very public, busy restaurant, and things went well. We kept on dating. We hiked. We played basketball. We went and listened to live music. Everything was going great until we had the DTR, define the relationship talk. The impasse, he wanted to be exclusive, and I wanted to date other people. My last two relationships had been serious, and it ended badly. One of them broke up with me on Valentine's Day. I knew that Dan was great, but I was not ready to invest my heart in something serious. Dan didn't want to date me if I was dating other people. We stopped dating and went back to email and phone calls. In the late summer of 2000, I went to Vegas with a few friends, and I could not stop thinking of Dan. I would think, Dan would like this restaurant, or if Dan saw this, he would probably say that. It was almost annoying that I could not turn my Dan thoughts off. I had to come to grips with my fears and realize that I really, really liked this man. I was ready to date only him. I hoped he would still be willing to date me. I got back from Vegas and called him up. I told him that I had something to tell him. He told me that he had something to tell me, too. Dang, would this be the end? I told him to go first. That is when he said those five amazing words. He said that he decided that you are worth waiting for. Aww. I know. Yep. We got engaged in December and married the next June. Ben was there. That's my husband, Ben. Uh, was there. We are working on our 20th year of marriage now. We have three amazing girls. We have definitely had our ups and downs. This is not a fairy tale. Marriage is both hard and rewarding. But now, almost 22 years later from the date that we first met, I am so thankful that he waited for me. I love that. I'm thankful he I waited know. for you too. Me too. Isn't that awesome? Yes. Thank you so much, Karen, uh, for listening and for sharing your story. That was amazing. She also said that her parents' love story is really great. And she was like, you got to ask them about it. So I'm going to I'm gonna do something. Get some. on it, Sally. Yep. I got to get on it. We need those love stories. Yep. You guys write in. Please do. Guys, please do. Thank, and thank you to Amy and to Karen. Yes. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Hey, Sally. Yes, Jen. Are you ready for this week's crazy story? 
You know I am. Okay. Okay. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you a Christmas story. <laughs> I said it like that. Um, okay. This, um, I think I'm going stir crazy. I'm just, I found myself talking to myself a lot this week. Yeah. Like I was making a pizza last night and I was like, what do we want on this? What do we want on this pizza? Is this good? <laughs> Like, oh, I'm talking to myself. Like, what, what am I missing? What, you- what am I missing on my pizza? A piece of pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever watched the show Alone? Have you ever watched No. That? Oh, my God. I love it so much. It's it's just – it's people who – they send people out into the woods and they take their own cameras and then they have just have to survive. And so it's like people alone in – like this season was in the Arctic. So it's like very – I mean, these are like really – talented survivalists and they know how they have to make their own shelter and find their own food and all of this and like but so many of them will be like what should we do today we are doing what makes me think of that because they're just like acting like they're talking about like what are we gonna do like what are we all gonna do today and i'm like it's just you dude it's oh. just you there yeah that's that's me in my that's brain you. yeah i'm having a party in my head because again i have a party in real life um okay i'll bring it back to Bring it back to the story. Okay. I'll get it together. I promise. Okay. So this week's crazy story came from. Wait, can I ask you a question? Yeah. What did we have on our pizza? You want to know? Mm-hmm. It was actually a really great pizza. I had, um, I put pesto and mm-hmm. then I put roasted cauliflower Delicious. and then I put roasted beets on it. And then I put some vegan cheese because this is mm. we are vegan. And then I put a oh vegan parmesan, and then I put a swirl of balsamic glaze on it. That sounds amazing. It was amazing, and I can't take credit for this pizza because it was inspired by a pizza place here in Atlanta called the Urban Pie, and they do one, but they do it with like goat cheese and all you know, real cheese and deliciousness. Right. I tried to recreate a vegan version of it, and it, the vegan version came out great. Hit up Urban Pie or try your own at home, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. Okay, even my kids okay, loved it. Sorry. Yeah. So okay. I just thought we all could have like a pizza break. But, yeah, you know. pizza break. That was fun to think about. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this now on to murder. Now on to murder. This came from um, an episode of Who the Bleep Did I Marry? And um, love it. Yeah. There was an article also for WUSA9.com written by Peggy Fox, Thanks, which was Peg. very informative. Okay. So in 2002, 53-year-old Joyce Siwa, which my kids love JoJo Siwa. And it just reminds me of Jojo Siwa, this YouTube star that's filthy okay. rich for having a ponytail. <laughs> that's it. She has a ponytail and, and she wears a bow. And so anyway, so in 2002, 53-year-old Joyce Siwa was a very successful career woman who worked for the Secret Service badass and then she worked for the treasury and she was also the chief of staff to three different political appointees and she was you know very successful and she made a really good money she was single and had never been married because she was super focused on her career um because she was busy being a fucking badass and she didn't need a man that's yeah, why. Who needs a man? She's got she's got herself in her career. Exactly. Probably lots of good friends. She probably travels. Totally. So she was set to retire in the summer of 2002. And so she was ready to settle down 
and enjoy, you know, the life that she had built for herself. She lived in a condo in Alexandria, but she was looking for an investment property. So mm-hmm. one day she was driving around and she sees this real estate sign in a yard um, for an agent named Bryant Parker. And she just decides to give him a call. She's like, you know, I'm looking to buy this property. So I'll just call this guy. So, but when she got on the phone with them, she realized that she really liked his voice. She said it sounded sexy. And then um, they ended up chatting for a long time. And she said that even over the phone, she just felt this connection and they um, had a flirtation over the phone. But when they finally met up, to look in person to look at some houses she was like hell yeah she said he was super good looking and uh, gorgeous but honestly i didn't think so i saw (laughs) pictures he looked a little too um pink for me for my like you know pink face (laughs) with a mustache he looked like the principal from ferris bueller you know that actor oh uh that uh guy uh but anyway she thought he was gorgeous, and that's all that matters. That's so, all that matters. They spent time looking at properties uh, together. They spent a lot of time because not only was she looking to buy an investment property in Alexandria, but she wanted to buy a country home for herself. Um, and so she wanted a home with like lots of land and horses. So they would drive out to the country together a lot, which was like a 40-minute drive away. So they were spending a lot of time together. And yeah. um, Joyce was hoping that it might turn into something more. But she was bummed out when she found out that he was only recently separated from his wife of 16 years and that they had a 12-year-old son together. Um, She just thought it was too too soon. And those things usually take a long time to tie up and um, that it was just too messy. Bryant just kept calling her and he would come over for dinner once a week in the show. She said, I could just feel the heat from his body. I just like the way she said that. Like, like they, their connection was so strong, she could feel his hate from his body. And then um, one night, Bryant finally made a move, and they ended up, you know, smooching, and then they, and probably mm-hmm. other things, and then they started dating. <laughs> so after he helped her close on the country home, they were inseparable and her friends all really liked him. They all said that he was a really nice and pleasant guy. And, you know, he had a great job uh, with the real estate company. And, um, you know, it was Joyce said that they connected on every level and she was really falling in love with him. But since Bryant was still going through his separation, he did still have to communicate with his soon to be ex-wife, you know? Right. And Joyce said that it was a little bit of a red flag that he would get into these arguments with his ex-wife where he would be screaming at the top of his lungs at her, just insanely screaming. But she tried to be understanding that, you know, this divorces are messy and people get really heated and they're emotional. And she kind of just looked the other way. And she put up with him talking to her all the time because he wanted her him to be in a good relationship with his ex-wife for the sake of his son. So during their first Christmas together, Joyce was excited. She was having a Christmas party and she was excited for Bryant to be there with her, you know, their first Christmas together. But then Mm -hmm. Bryant told her that he couldn't go because his ex wanted him to be at home with his son. And she was totally understanding like, yes, of course, go be at home with your son. You know, it was Christmas. But then when Valentine's Day rolled around and Bryant told her that she he needed to go spend Valentine's Day with his 
with his ex and his son, Joyce was like, uh, do what now? Like yeah, Valentine's no, Day? And so she tried to be understanding again, but she called her friends and was like, is this weird that he's spending Valentine's Day with his ex? And all her friends were like, yeah, that's weird. Yeah, and so when he got home, she just flat out asked him, like, did you have sex with your ex-wife uh, or his soon-to-be ex-wife? And Bryant just said, yes, I did. And Joyce said cool. that she just picked up her purse and she walked straight out the door. And she was like, yeah, I didn't like, have a man before and I don't need one now. Exactly. But he just kept calling her and calling her and she wouldn't answer. But it, and he called like 20. He would leave phone messages like, you know, begging her for forgiveness. And when she finally picked up the phone, he was crying and um, he was telling her that it was a huge mistake. It will never happen again. I love you so much. Mm-hmm. And he told her that he wanted to marry her. So, you know, just to show him how much, like, I want to leave my wife for good and I want to marry you. And so Joyce forgave him and they did decide to get married. So that April, after Bryant was officially divorced, they were set to have the wedding. Um, But then the night before the wedding, Bryant came home and told Joyce that he had something to tell her. Apparently, um, that day, he had gotten into an argument with one of the builders at his real estate company, and they fired him. He was very upset about being fired, but Joyce was like, look, you know, I just retired. I have retirement money. And she was already working again at a consultant firm and making good money again. So she told him that she would support him while he started his own real estate company. And he was like, okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. Very generous. Of Sounds you. great. Thanks. And so, <laughs> That's not what I was hoping would happen with all. I know. And so, the next day, they ended up getting married at her country house um, since it had like beautiful scenery and horses running in the background and stuff. And then that July, they went to London for their honeymoon, which of course Joyce paid for. Mm-hmm. But apparently, as soon as they got back, Bryant just started acting like a completely different person. Joyce was spending all of this money helping him set up his business. She was paying for the rent in his office. She was paid for like setting up the office. She bought all the computers, like all the stuff, all the business stuff. And so, but Bryant wasn't doing any of the work and he wasn't selling anything. And um, so that was a point of contention and they started fighting a lot. Mm-hmm. And after mm-hmm. two years, the business ended up closing and um, Bryant went into like a really dark place. He was just drinking a lot and yelling a lot. He would yell at her. He was verbally abusive. He was super depressed and he would get a job and then for a minute and then bounce to another job. And then, and this ha- like went on for years while Joyce supported him and yeah. his drinking just kept getting worse and his anger just kept getting worse. He, like I said, he was verbally abusing her. We'd call her um, horrific names. Uh, but then afterwards he would cry and apologize. But by December 1st, 2009, she was like, no, she had enough. And she told them that she wanted a separation which of course he begged her not to leave him. And so she finally told him like, okay, look, I'll give you a year to get your shit together. Stop drinking, get a job, quit yelling at me. You know, Mm -hmm. just you have one year, but the year passed and he still hadn't done shit. And he was actually worse with the drinking. By that September, Bryant admitted himself into a psychiatric ward in Virginia to get better. And Joyce was glad that he was getting help 
but she was still over the marriage, you know, like just no. And so she proceeded with the divorce, but she waited until he got out of the hospital that November. And she thought he was well enough to, you know, be able to receive these divorce papers, you know? So she served him the, the divorce papers. And then he, of course, called her freaking out and screaming at her. She didn't even pick up the phone, but he would just leave all these crazy voicemails calling her every name in the book. And he was like, obviously drunk. And he would go from screaming to crying to telling her he loved her. And then he missed her. Just madman raving on voicemails. One day when she finally picked up the phone to talk to him, you know, just to, you know, I guess figure out the divorce or whatever. Um, he yeah. told her that he wanted to come over and talk to her about the divorce. And she was like, mm, probably like, we don't, you don't really need to come over here. And he was like, well, let me help you get the house ready for the winter. Like, you don't know how to do all this stuff. Like, you know, chop the wood and turn off the pipes or whatever. Let me do that for you. And she was like, yeah, I guess. Okay, fine. So on December 1st, 2011, um, a month, one month before the divorce would be final, he came to her house and they ended up talking for a long time he told her that he was sober now and he was in a much better place and that Mm -hmm. he loved her and that he would be nothing without her but she told him that you know like look i just can't do it the marriage is over but we'll always be friends and the day came and went and he still hadn't like helped her with all the house stuff he said he was going to do so he asked if he could sleep there and that if he could and that he would help her in the morning and then he would leave after he you know did those things and she she agreed and she went to bed that night feeling good like they had fi- finally reached some sort of closure and that they would ha- yeah. it would be a friendly split the calm before the storm yes because in the middle of the night that night she woke up and he was standing over her with a knife <gasps> yeah he didn't say anything Ooh, there nightmare i know Totally. He didn't say anything, but she said that the look on his face was absolutely horrid. And that's when he slammed the knife into her chest. Um, She was able to somehow grab her phone and called 911. And she said, my husband is killing me. And when she did that and turned over, he stabbed her again in the back. She was trying to get away from him. And as she tried to get away, um, Bryant just kept slashing over and over and over. And she was badly cut above her eye and on her wrist. And at some point during their struggle, she either fell or was pushed down the stairs. (gasps) And um, she said she had so much blood coming up that she couldn't breathe and she was choking on her own blood and she eventually passed out. And when she passed out, that's when Bryant grabbed the phone and said, hello. And then they said, this is 911. And then Bryant said, I killed my wife. And then the operator said, okay, sir, stay on the phone with me. And 911 told him to stay on the phone and they gave him instructions on how to help and try to save her. And he, mm-hmm. and he did, he complied. He, he like got, he, they told him to get a cloth and stick it on the wound to stop the bleeding. And he did. But before you think like, oh, he helped her. Like he felt sorry. First of all, He's the one that very purposefully stabbed her. Right. No, but, I wasn't yeah. thinking. It's yeah. just like, it's so crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And then also he knew that she had already said on the phone who stabbed her. So the police right. are going to know it's him. 
they know it's him. So he's trying to just to salvage something, you know what I mean? So he's trying to save her. And so when the police got there, they arrested him for first degree murder. And when the ambulance arrived, Joyce was flown into a trauma center. Her lungs had collapsed and she was bleeding to death. But luckily, the knife missed her heart by an inch. And after a major surgery, they were able to save her life. So Bryant tried several times to be found as mentally unfit for trial, Mm -hmm. but his plan didn't work. And on September 4th, 2003, he accepted a plea deal to one count of malicious wounding. He tried to act like he was insane, but it was obvious that he was trying to kill her to be able to get all of her assets while they were still married. Because if the divorce went through one month later, he would have gotten, he wouldn't have gotten anything. You know, yeah, she. It's very convenient time to have a mental snap, right? Like he, and then like to be like, oh well, I snapped, but then I was back with it enough to try to save her. Yeah, on the phone, like that's no. Well, so here's what's crazy is so on October first, two thousand thirteen, he was sentenced to twenty years in prison with four years suspended. The four years were suspended because he had put the cloth on her chest to stop the bleeding. They said mm-hmm. that it contributed to saving her life. So because he did that, he's serving last time. And um, since the attack, Joyce has been on disability and she suffers from PTSD. Um, But she's a very strong woman and she gets stronger every day. And she is now a domestic abuse victims advocate to try to help other women. And she believes that she survived so that she can tell her stories to other victims of domestic abuse and violence. And Bryant Parker will be released in 2025, which is tomorrow, essentially. And then, but after he's released, he'll have to be on four years of supervised parole. And the last thing they said, and the last thing I could find about Joyce was that she plans to write a book about her experience. I hope she does, and I hope she makes helps a lot of people through it. And I hope that she's able to make back all the money that she wasted on that piece of shit motherfucker named Brian Parker. Oh man, yeah, yeah. Whew. that's brutal. I'm so happy she survived. Me too. Um, and she's such a gorgeous woman. Like she's a gorgeous, strong, independent, self-made woman. And then just like this, just pink faced, mustachioed, stupid fuck face just came in and like (laughs) bled her dry and then tried to kill her. Yeah. It just makes me so angry. I hope he, I hope something happens to where he's in jail for much longer. Mm, me Who too. Who knows? Who knows? That was a good one. Thanks, man. It was a brutal one, but it was good. Yeah. You did a great job. Thanks. Great, great job, man. Thank you. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Sally. Hey, do you remember a few weeks ago when I said that the thing that I love was this 30 for 30 series on Marta and Bella Caroli? Yeah. I actually started listening to it. Oh, did you? And then I was like, oh, look, a bird. And I got distracted and I stopped. (laughs) But I need to get back into it. It was really good what I had listened to so far. Well, this made – it made me wonder because they were the coach of Nadia Komenich, who was the first gymnast to score a perfect 10 in the Olympics. Uh Uh-huh. And so it made me think, what's she up to now? And when I looked into it, I was like, ah, 
I found a love story. Oh, yay! Yeah, so this is the love story of Nadia Komenich and Bart Connor. So I got my information from New York Times, an article by Robert Lipstey, from Wikipedia, from the LA Times, from Euronews, and from Radio Times. So, okay. So there, there is so much to Nadia's story that I'm just kind of scraping the surface, but she did write a book and there's so much out there if you want to learn more about her and about Bart Connor. So just know that this is just like a short overview of everything that has gone on in their lives. So, okay. So uh, Nadia Comaneci was born in the small town of Onesti in Romania, and she was so full of energy and active that her parents enrolled her in gymnastics when she was in kindergarten. And when she was six years old, Bella Caroli spotted her and a friend doing cartwheels at a playground, and he went and found her in the school and asked her to come train with him and his wife, Marta. That's really creepy. It would never happen these days. Right. Yeah. So they had ju- she was one of the first kids to enroll in their school because their whole thing was that they thought we need to start kids young. Right. And and they were kind of the first ones who were like young kids can do these hard tricks. They started like this trend of very young gymnasts. But what's kind of crazy is that so Nadia, we know that she became a world-class gymnast, but then the friend that she was doing cartwheels with actually became like a world-class ballerina. Wow. Which is just kind of crazy from this tiny town in Romania. So in 1970, Nadia began competing as a member of her hometown team. And then at age nine, she became the youngest gymnast ever to win the Romanian nationals. And from that time on, she started to dominate every competition she was in. And in March of 1976, at age 14, She competed in the inaugural edition of the American Cup at Madison Square Garden in Manhattan. She received rare scores of 10, which was like a perfect routine for her vault and for her floor exercise routine in the final of the all-around competition, which she won. So she won the women's all-around, and the winner of the men's all-around was an 18-year-old American gymnast named Bart Connor. And Bart had been born in Morton Grove, Illinois. He started gymnastics at a young age, and like Nadia, he quickly showed talent. He won the 1972 U.S. Junior National Championships when he was 14, and the U.S. Gymnastics Federation All-Around Championship when he was 17. And this is when he met Nadia. So the two of them both won the all-around for their, you know, men's and women's, and they stood on the podium. They both held up their trophies. And this photographer said to Bart, hey, oh, she's adorable. Give her a kiss on the cheek. That'd make a nice picture. Uh-huh. And so he did. And, you know, and so after the picture, Bart was 17 at the time. Nadia was 14. And they didn't think much of the shot. They went their own ways because now – the Summer Olympics were just three months away. And so that's what they were looking towards. At that Olympics, Bart came in 46th place. But Nadia, as Bart says, redefined our sport and became a global superstar. Wow! So this was at the Montreal Olympics. And during the team, the team competition, she was awarded the first perfect 10 in Olympic gymnastics for her routine on the uneven bar. But the people who made the the scoreboard had been led to believe that competitors couldn't receive a perfect 10. So they hadn't even programmed the scoreboard to display a 10. And so when they put it up, it was like 1.00, which meant that was the only way the judges could indicate that she received a 10. Oh, wow. So 
during the remainder of the game, she earned six additional tens. Um, she won gold medals for individual all around the balance beam, uneven bars. She won a bronze for the floor exercise and a silver as part of the team all around. She was the first Romanian gymnast to win the Olympic all around title. And she holds the record as the youngest ever Olympic gymnastics all around champion. Wow. So after, after this 1976 Olympics, she became a national icon in Romania. She continued to dominate gymnastics. She won two gold and two silver medals at the 1980 Olympics. And in 1981, the Gymnastics Federation contacted her and informed her that she was going to be part of this official tour of the United States. It was called Nadia 81. Marta and Bellacruli led the group. So it was Romanian team and American gymnast. And they were going around the country on this tour. And one of those American gymnasts was Bart Connor. And Nadia says she later remember thinking like, oh, Bart's cute. He bounced around the bus talking to everyone. He was incredibly friendly and fun. But the thing that dominated the news of this tour was that on the last day of the tour, the coaches Marta and Bella Caroli defected. So they hid out in a hotel room while the rest of the team returned to Romania and they stayed in the U.S. And then after the defection of the Crowleys, life changed drastically for Nadia in Romania. I also want to say, so sorry, this is a spoiler, but this is pretty wide knowledge. But in the 30 for 30 series about the Crowleys, other gymnasts talk about the abuse that they suffered at the hands of the Crowleys in Romania, the beatings and the mental abuse and how starvation, starvation. And so they say that like, when the Crowleys didn't show up on the bus on that last day of the tour, they were relief. They felt like their nightmare was over. Yeah. And from what I can find, though, that Nadia has said that she didn't suffer that abuse. And I think part of that was because their school was in the town she lived in. So she would go home at the end of the day. She wasn't. Right. And she was their star. So they treated her differently from the other, from other athletes. And you actually hear that from kind of their top athletes, like Mary Lou Retton says that she was never abused by the Crowleys, but a lot of other athletes were. Mm -hmm. It's awful. And their like kind of legacy of that in gymnastics is, is, um, is pretty far and wide. So listen to that. Listen to the 30 for 30. But this is not about them. So anyway, so she went back to Romania. And and the Olympics actually had never made her wealthy. Her salary was like $100 a month. Oh, my and God. She said that, yeah, she, her mother, and her brother all would sleep on the kitchen floor in the winter to keep warm. And she says, I had no friends because I didn't want them to know how poor I was because she, you know, she was literally a national icon. That is insane to me. When you think about all these fucking YouTube stars that mm-hmm. are bajillionaires for opening up a box. Yeah. And th- well, remember, this is also, this is communism. Yeah. In the 80s in Romania. So yeah. Nadia didn't compete in the 1984 Olympics, but Bart Connor did. And he actually won two gold medals gold medals at the, that Olympics. And he parlayed his gold into endorsements and a career as a sportscaster. And he eventually ran his own gymnastics gym. He was also in the movie Rad. Do you remember Rad? Yes, it's one of my favorite movies. I can Me too. sing like every song. Are you serious? I feel like <laughs> yes. I sang some Rad songs on this podcast before. You did. Before. You did. Yes. Yeah, so he was in that He movie. was Bart? He was Bart Taylor in the movie Oh, my God. This is crazy. (laughs) Which is very – it was very exciting to me. So Nadia – like I said, Nadia 
officially retired in 1984, and she wrote in her memoir that after she retired, she says, life took on a new bleakness. I was cut off from making the small amount of extra money that had really made a difference in my family's life. It was also insulting that a normal person in Romania had the chance to travel, whereas I could not. When my gymnastics career was over, there was no longer any need to keep me happy. I was to do as I was instructed, just as I'd done my entire life. If Bella hadn't defected, I would have still been watched, but his defection brought a spotlight on my life and it was blinding. I started to feel like a prisoner. So in 1989, a few weeks before the Romanian revolution, Nadia defected. One day she says she realized that she could remain in Romania frustrated with no hope of a life of her own, or she could spread her wings and take a chance. She realized if she was caught, she would be imprisoned or even killed but she decided to go for it. So one night, as part of a group of seven people, she walked for six hours through deep snow and ice to Hungary and then over seven barbed wire fences to Austria, where she was granted asylum to America. But the man who that she had paid to help her escape, whose name was Konstantin Panit, effectively held her captive for three months after her defection. Oh, my gosh. So in the American press, they knew that she had come to America, she had been granted asylum, and she was still a big deal. But she was portrayed in the American news as this homewrecker because she was dressing in short skirts and fishnet fishnet tights, and Panet had a wife and four kids. But Nadia says that from the time that she joined Panet, he dictated her every move. Oh, wow. Um, She says, he wouldn't let anyone near me. He told me all the time what I must say. Um, she had met him at a family party the week before she defected. And even though everyone in the press thought that they were together, Nadia says they were never romantically involved. He had told her to declare that she wouldn't go back into gymnastics or see her former coach and that she had no one else to turn to in the United States or Canada. And she had no way of contacting like Bella Caroli or anyone else. She said, I didn't know anybody. I was like a stranger and I didn't know my rights. And Panet had told her all the time, like, if he if she didn't say exactly what he told her to, that he would send her back to Romania. So he basically was like, I'm your manager. I'm trying he was trying to make money off of her. And she, you know, had, who had lived under communist rule for so long, didn't didn't know any differently. And so she basically was like under the control of this man. Wow. So Bart Connor was kind of watching this all play out in the news because nobody knew what was going on. They just saw it that she had come to America with this man as the mistress of this man uh, who had a wife and four kids. And so he saw that she was going to be on the Pat Sajak show. And since he was a TV commentator, he was like, okay, I'm going to try to get into the green room there. So he was able to talk himself into the green room. And that is where he saw Nadia again. And he sensed that she was afraid and he offered to help. And he actually made the connections that eventually led her to escape that relationship and connected her to a new life in Montreal with a Romanian rugby coach and his family. And then later in 1990, Bart interviewed Nadia for ABC. And then a few months later, he was invited to her 29th birthday party. And for like a year, isn't it amazing that she was only 29? Yes. 
For a year, they just were talked on the phone. They were just friends. Bart says, we were good friends before there was a physical attraction. And then he said, over that year, I saw the hard shell drop and a warm, caring woman emerge. And Nadia says, I was curious about him. He didn't want anything in exchange for helping me. Aw, he saved her. Yeah. So in 1990, Bart invited Nadia to move to Oklahoma to help him run his gymnastics school. And she came and soon the two fell in love. Aww. And he proposed in Amsterdam in 1994. And when they got married, they returned to Romania for their wedding. It was in 1996. And it was held in the capital of Bucharest. And Nadia said she couldn't imagine getting married anywhere else. And this was after the fall of the Soviet Union and the establishment of an independent Romania. And so the government welcomed her home as a national hero. And actually, the wedding was televised live throughout Romania. The government gave people the day off of work to watch. And their reception was held at the former presidential palace. Wow. crazy? Yes. You know, 20 years after she's still hailed as a hero in Romania. And so today, Nadia and Bart are essentially like the royal couple of the gymnastics world. They- Oh, Yeah. um, Yeah, they make appearances, they do commercial endorsements, they have speaking engagements, and they also are very involved in charitable causes. Nadia is the vice chairperson of the um, Special Olympics. She is the vice president of the Muscular Dystrophy Association. They work with the Lawrence Sports for Good Foundation. And outside of traveling the world to foster fandom for gymnastics and to talk to kids about health and sports, the two stay busy raising their 14-year-old son, Dylan. Aww. That, that is, is a story of Nadia Komenich and Bart Connor, that, who all started with a kiss. Oh my God, I love that, and I, I just, I personally love it because I, I've only listened to the first couple of episodes of that Thirty for Thirty, and it's just her conditions sound horrific, and and then listening to, uh, and then you know being a big fan of the movie Rad, I had no yeah. idea that the villain in Rad. <laughs> was an angel this whole time. This whole time. I fe- this just like blows my mind. I know. It blew my mind too. And because I remember watching, there was a movie called Perfect 10 that was based on her story about getting the perfect 10 at, um, at the Olympics. And I loved it as a kid. I was so, I mean, I was like, got kicked out of gymnastics because I couldn't do the splits, but like, <laughs> but I still love gymnastics as we all did as like young children. I love that story and I'm glad they're together. Me too. Good one. Good one. Thanks, dude. All right. Should we do something dumb and something we love? Yes. You're first, Um, man. Okay. So for something dumb, I've just been so busy that my mom called me and was like, what are you doing for Labor Day? And I was like, I don't, what is... What time is Labor Day? <laughs> I don't even like. I didn't realize Labor Day was coming up, so I didn't plan anything. I totally forgot about Labor Day. It's just dumb that I've been so busy. I didn't realize it. But um, but what I love is that it's Labor Day, <laughs> Labor Day weekend, and so um, I guess I um, we're gonna do some hiking. We're, we just got to get out of this house before I keep yeah. talking to myself. Um, so we're going to do some hiking and, um, and then Sally, you're going to, you and Ben are going to come with us. We're going to socially yes. distant outside, go do some rock sliding. I'm so excited. Out in the, 
woods in the wilderness, <laughs> fresh air. And then at night, I'm going to drink a lot. Because that's how. That also sounds awesome. Yes, that's my self care. Um, yeah. How about you? Well, I would say also dumb. I'm just going to pick being busy for being dumb. I, 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 nothing like crazy. I feel like all our, our things that are dumb have been so awful lately. I know. And, you know, it's not that the world is any less awful right now, but I do want to say that something I love is the organization I work for has been really amazing during COVID as far as like supporting workers, which is like not the norm, um, or at least not from what I'm hearing from other people, including my husband. We have today off. That's awesome. I know everybody's been stressed to like take a four day weekend. And then they just gave us two weeks of personal time on top of our to use just until the end of the year. So we have two extra weeks of time off to help with taking care of our kids and doing schooling and just everything to kind of make it easier for people to manage. That and I just, is amazing. It is amazing. And I feel really grateful to work for an organization that cares about their employees. So, Hell, so that's yeah, there's still good in the world. There's still good in the oh, world. Oh man. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the thing I love. And I also love that I'm going to get to see your face this week. I know. I haven't seen your face in so long. I know. I've just been not even seeing your face through the screen. We just do this on a system that it's just audio. So I don't even see yeah, your face on the screen. Ears. You, you could know. have a totally different face. I don't know. <laughs> I hope I don't. You tell me. <laughs> what if we I both mean, just look like we've aged 20 years? <laughs> I know. Just, just be like, you look great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to talking <laughs> through the computer. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. No, I'm excited. <laughs> and the kids will be happy to see Max. Yeah, um, and Max will love to see Sully and Moe. Yeah, it'll be great. <laughs> and we hope all of you guys out there are having, or uh, by the time this comes out, it will be Labor Day. See, look, we're working yeah. on Labor Day. Look at this. Oh yeah, look at us. Um, you, <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah, we did it for you. you. Hopefully, you guys are having an amazing day today, getting some uh, relaxation. And um, gearing up for another week of virtual bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Let's end it positively. Um, Have a great Labor Day, guys. And if you guys send us your stories. Uh, We got some other uh, write-ins coming up for next week, too. I'm excited to do one for next week. And um, if you guys have any others, uh, send them our way. If you want to hear your story on Dumb Love, you could send it to dumblovepod at gmail.com. Yep. And you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Dumb Love Podcast. Um, You can find us on Patreon. Uh, We would love for you to join us there. And uh, we'd also appreciate a little rate and review. Yeah. You know, just a a little rate and review, just a little five star, a little, hey, I like this podcast. That would be awesome. Swoop. Like, you don't even, if you just want to just swoop to the five stars, but go to to the the five. five. Don't don't end on the one. Go to the five. (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you guys so much. I hope you have a great week. And uh, get out there this Labor Day and do something dumb for love.